Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Tech Buzz China. We are a new weekly podcast focused on bringing you the most relevant, interesting, and buzzworthy headlines in China tech. We are a part of Pandaily.com, a new English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. This is episode numero dos, number two, DRG. So let's get ready. I'm going to introduce myself again for those of you who are just tuning in. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Ray Ma, and I live in San Francisco. I'm an angel investor, entrepreneur, China watcher, and most importantly, cat lover. Hi, and I'm Yingying Liu, your other co-host, also based in San Francisco, although I'm originally from Atlanta. I'm also an entrepreneur and China watcher, and unfortunately, I'm severely allergic to raised cats. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> by the way, we had a few hundred listeners for our first episode last week, and it's pretty exciting to get your feedback. So many of you mentioned that you wanted to hear more perspectives and insights on the show, which is so great since that's exactly our mission. So in addition to sharing our own thoughts, we will be reaching out to other experts we know. Keep the feedback coming. Okay, let's get to it. This week, we're going to be talking about Pinduoduo and Naked Hub. The first is a story about an e-commerce company that's growing like a weed, and the second is a consolidation story about co-working in China. Right. So one of the biggest stories in e-commerce the past couple of weeks is a rumored fundraising of Pinduoduo, the fastest growing app in the history of Chinese internet. So Pin means to piece together, and Duoduo is much, much. So if you haven't guessed it already, it's a group buying app. Its predecessor, Ping Hao Huo, which means to piece together good goods, focused on the group buying of fruit and other grocery items. So the founder of Ping Hao Huo was also an investor in Ping Duo Duo, which was actually a separate gaming company in Shanghai that somehow ended up doing social commerce. Ping Duo Duo at the time had broader product categories, not just groceries, and it was more focused on gamification and viral growth. Anyway, supposedly at the urging of Banyan Capital, which was an investor in both companies, they merged in late 2016, and I guess ultimately decided to continue using the Pinduoduo brand. I know it's kind of confusing, but what you want to take away from all this is that the company was founded in September 2015 by ex-Googler Colin Huang, which means it's only two and a half years old. And now it's valued at fifteen billion dollars. Yep. So the way the app works is pretty simple. It offers merchandise that's cheaper than market price by letting consumers buy directly from manufacturers. So they cut out all the middlemen, the advertising, and the other costs. They also add some gaming elements to the shopping experience by giving out coupons and rewards. So if a shopper recruits his or her friends to join them in an eligible purchase, the entire group gets a discount. So to help you picture what this app looks like, I downloaded it just to check it out. 
as of the time of this recording, this is what's showing up for me on the front page of the Pinduoduo app. A Lincoln Park t-shirts for 26 RMB or four bucks with already 210,000 purchases completed. There's also an eight pack, 300 sheet napkins from Recycle Paper at just $1.40 with free shipping, by the way, which three and a half million people have already bought and which I can get by just inviting one other friend to join in. Wow, that's pretty cheap. Yingying, do you need any napkins? <laughs> you know, Ray, I'm super tempted, but I don't think they ship to the US yet. At the end of last year, Pinduoduo is already seeing about 1.6 billion US dollars of monthly GMV and 300 million users behind only Taobao and JD. It's the second most popular shopping app in China on app stores, and it doesn't show any sign of slowing down, which is why one of the headlines at Pandaily this week is, Alibaba's worst nightmare, Pinduoduo. Its huge user base is mostly from third and fourth tier city residents whose average monthly disposable income is only about $160 or so. It's got 70% female consumers and over half of its users are between 25 and 35 years old. That is prime Taobao demographic. Yeah, but there's still a good amount of Chinese people not on the app. So for example, I have the maximum amount of WeChat contacts allowed currently, which is about 5,000. And I have yet to see a single request to join in a Pinduoduo group purchase or any kind of group buy, actually. But then again, most of my friends are investing. So understandably, they're probably hunting for a different type of deal. Yeah, my experience is similar. So it's still a pretty specific type of person who's on Pinduoduo. They're also not super clear about how much Pinduoduo has raised in this new round of funding, but it seems to be either 1 billion US dollars or 3 billion at a 15 billion valuation. And guess who the rumored lead investor is? Of course, Tencent. Ah, the Tencent-Alibaba rivalry. We'll have to have a whole episode on that one day. But for listeners, you guys just know that they hate each other, like Democrats versus Republicans type of hate. Yeah, so Pinduoduo is in Camp Tencent, which is good for them. But I personally think that their future is still uncertain. I mean, is this kind of growth sustainable or is it just a fad? But before I let you know my opinion, let me share with you the perspective of Kathy Xu, one of the top VCs in China who has made her fortune on e-commerce and retail, and who was one of the first investors in JD, Dianping, and various other decacorns in China. Her fund is called Capital Today and was founded in 2005. She's basically, no exaggeration, the most respected investor in this space. According to her, of course, they looked at Pinduoduo early and noted that its strength was in its supply chain, which impressed her. I think it's interesting, by the way, that she didn't think the whole WeChat social element was its core advantage. Anyway, she ultimately didn't invest because she said she couldn't figure out the value proposition of the company. Was it to bring happiness to consumers because they liked buying in groups? Was it to save 25 cents on a $1 purchase? Or was it to provide an entertaining experience for consumers who wanted to be distracted? She didn't think any of these were quote unquote revolutionary enough for a truly great business. But obviously, many other investors disagree. On the other side of the table, we have Mark Poles, who was a longtime iBanker at Morgan Stanley covering China Tech, which is where Ray met him. And he used to be an investor at GDV, one of the biggest cross-border funds, and also a big player in e-commerce, having been early in Alibaba, Wish, and other players. Mark lived in China for over a decade, and he gave us his perspective over the phone. 
Bindodor is actually really interesting to me because it uh, is one of these business models that simply would not have been possible even a few years ago. And that's because uh, right, it leverages a large social graph, in this case WeChat, to bring together consumers to discover and participate in, uh, right, in finding deals. So you can aggregate interest at a scale that previously was simply not possible. Right? As you have to remember, these sort of business models, group buying for physical goods, were among the first in commerce that were actually tried back in the in the mid to late 90s, but they simply could not scale because you didn't have an audience that was large enough. You couldn't aggregate interests right, using machine learning or through social mechanisms, etc. And what Bindodor taps into is what I think is an enduring human need to find deals, right? Uh, people get a, a dopamine rush when they feel they scored a deal. It's the group social element that adds both a little bit of a gamification layer and the ability to, again, to get those group together. You know, as to whether or not longer term, as consumers in China become more sophisticated, it will persist. You know, I would draw the comparison to the United States, where arguably you have the most advanced consumerist society in the world, and you have companies like a, a Ross or, or a TJ Maxx that are not particularly convenient or fun shopping experiences that are still used by 80 plus million American shoppers every year. And things such as coupons.com and rebates and all the other coupon-related business models that are there are still very popular, right? If you look at the top shopping apps in the uh, Android store in particular, but also on iOS, it's the coupon and rebates-related apps that are at least three out of the five of the top ten apps consistently. And this is not about saving a lot of money. It's saving small amounts of money, uh, relatively speaking. But people love deals. I don't think that's ever going to change. Yeah, guys, so what do you think? Do you agree with Kathy or think that Mark's points are spot on? I have to confess, I am with Kathy. But then again, I hate hunting for deals and rely on my brother to explain credit card rewards to me. So I may really be the wrong person to evaluate this company. Let us know what you think. Send us your thoughts and we love to feature the most thoughtful comments on our next episode. You can tweet at Mark as well. He's always up for a good debate. He can be found at m 3 P-O-L-S on Twitter. Another big news that was announced last week on April 12th was WeWork's acquisition of Naked Hub, one of its primary competitors in China for $400 million. The brand will continue to exist, but it adds 24 spaces to WeWork China and triples WeWork China's presence, bringing the total to 37 spaces. For context, WeWork had first entered China in 2016 with a space in Shanghai. So there was a lot of debate on the Chinese blogosphere about how to interpret this. Was it all about Naked Hub selling due to lack of funds, or in fact a move that shows foreign entrepreneurs can succeed in China? So the founder of Naked Hub, Grant Horsfield, is a South African entrepreneur who had originally started a hospitality and resort business. It was only after he closed the Series C for that parent company that he decided to get into co-working. Yeah, Yingying and I totally had a debate over this over WeChat. So I'm of the mind that it shows a success story. A foreign entrepreneur can succeed in China and have a great exit, and a foreign company can do well in China. Naked Hub is actually one of the few spaces in China I haven't visited, probably because it is too upscale for many of the struggling startups I looked at, but it's known for really beautiful designs and for being in prime locations like Xintendi in Shanghai, one of the most upscale business districts in the city. Also, I really believe there's a core difference between WeWork and top Chinese competitors, such as Ucommune. WeWork has over 25% of its revenues from large corporate clients, while Ucommune hasn't been as quick to go beyond startups. 
But that's probably because Yu Commune received a lot of Chinese government stipends, and so it's still heavily tied to innovation and entrepreneurship, which is basically the chief rallying cry of the current presidency. Yeah, the ties to government are a big driver in this different mindset. For example, folks in the co-working industry in the U.S. often think of the industry being that of real estate at its core, and conversely, in China, oftentimes the land and buildings are gifted or at least subsidized. As Ray mentioned, that's both an advantage and a challenge because it comes with a lot of strings attached and makes for completely different business models. So, for the benefit of some of our listeners who might not be as familiar, why don't you give us some context on the trend of co-working in China? Sure, Ray. So, the growth of not just co-working, but also accelerators, incubators, and all sorts of services for entrepreneurs have been exploding in recent years. I noticed an uptick beginning as early as late 2015. In China, shared offices have been growing at a rate of 30% year on year. By the numbers, it's estimated that by 2019, the total operating area of shared offices in China will reach 550 million square feet. By 2030, 30% of office space in China will be shared. It goes along with the rise of an entire sharing economy in China in general. Yeah, and I think we should add here that Yingying is definitely an expert in this area because she worked for a while as the head of U.S. expansion for Chinese co-working space. Anyway, we're actually all very familiar with the co-working spaces. In fact, the team at Pan Daily works out of one of them, the Yu Commune in Beijing, which I did visit. Yeah, that's right. We asked our friend Rebecca Pan, the CEO and co-founder of Co-working Space Covo, which has locations here in San Francisco as well as in St. Louis, about her takeaways from a visit that took place in October 2016, a couple of years ago. My name is Rebecca Pan. I'm the founder and CEO of a co-working company called Covo. I've been in co-working forever since it began, really, since 2009, and have opened 11 spaces since then. It was really illuminating to visit Beijing and see what the co-working scene is like there. It's interesting because it's such a new scene in China, but it's been so explosive that we were able to learn a lot. One of the spaces we visited was Soho 3Q. One thing that really struck us was just the scale and the quality. We were incredibly impressed. The biggest thing that we really drew is just how valuable WeChat is. And I don't know why that's not a bigger deal in the U.S. because it, it should be. I'm not sure why Slack is so big here when when we could all be on WeChat. And also the potential in terms of scale that we've seen makes me realize that we can go bigger at a grander scale, and that that can be really successful. I was with Rebecca on this trip, and I remember how much she was amazed that co-working had been adapted and scaled beyond her imagination in China. So we're talking about both the size of the space and the seamless delivery of amenities within those spaces. She even called 3Q galactic. It also looks like a spaceship, so that's pretty apt. I've also observed at least two completely different schools of thought within co-working and the folks who tend to start co-working spaces. So the first is that it's all about scale and it's primarily a real estate business. The second is that it's all about services and the models and teams are driven by this desire to build community and provide services and monetize those services. So, for example, the dad of our intern Gilbert, who's sitting here. Is the founder of Impact Hub in Shanghai, and Gilbert's dad really had a vision of creating this community space that facilitates interactions between entrepreneurs, offering their services to emerging startups. 
So there are services providers who tack on a real estate business, and then there are the real estate entrepreneurs who still see this as primarily a property business. I personally think the latter is winning. So for example, Yukami, the top player that we mentioned earlier, was founded by a senior executive from China's largest real estate company, Wanke. It has 7,000 members, whereas WeWork just exceeded 200,000. So it's still quite small. What do you think, Yingying? Will WeWork win in China? This might be a bit of a cop-out answer, but I think they're doing quite well, and they're on a really good trajectory. As you can see from the numbers that Ray mentioned, the industry is just now getting started, whether in China or elsewhere. So I think there's space for both foreign and domestic players in the co-working industry in China now, especially given the different customer segments that we discussed as well. WeWork has an impressive operational playbook and the ability to establish standard prices and levels of service. They also use data and tech to optimize office design and create an internal network for members. So as long as they're able to continue to hire locally to localize their product smartly, then I think it will do well. It also already has a good number of global multinational clients in China and a good brand name. Finally, I think WeWork has going for it a major Chinese fund, Honey Capital, which is affiliated with Lenovo as an investor. So big bucks are always helpful. Yeah, I agree with you. Ultimately, I think that the most successful entities are going to be those who remember that they're first and foremost a real estate business. And I think Naked Hub was a great purchase. There's a clear culture and strategy fit. And I can't imagine $400 million was a poor outcome. No, not at all. And again, this is just the start. I'm personally really bullish on the merging of creativity, design, and real estate in all different formats. Coworking is just one example. So if you think about how cities are developing and how new trends in mobility are impacting urbanization in the future of work, which I believe is in remote working and distributed teams, we're going to see what I call hyper-local hubs. And in China, which has massive scale, this will grow quickly, not just in first-tier cities, but on to second-tier cities and so on. Yeah, in China, we definitely don't have to rely on market forces for that to happen. The government can single-handedly issue mandates, and that will just radically change the entire country. So to recap, today we've talked about the newest deck corn in the house, Pinduoduo, the social commerce app, and how it's growing like crazy. We also talked about WeWork's second substantial acquisition in Asia, the first being Singapore's Space Mob, of the high-end co-working space Naked Hub in China, and what that means for the sector as well as for foreign entrepreneurs doing business in China. Some of the other stories we didn't get to cover this week include fundraising news for Faraday Future, a Chinese electric car company, and JD.com entering Spain. As always, you can find these and more on pandaily.com. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. We really enjoyed putting this together and are always open to any comments or suggestions. You can find us on Twitter at ThePanDaily, that's spelled T-H-E-P-A-N-D-A-I-L-Y, and my personal Twitter account is Rayma, and that's just spelled R-U-I-M-A. And my Twitter is spelled G-I-N-Y-G-I-N-Y. We also have a Facebook page now. Just search for Tech Buzz China, Tech Buzz being one word. All right, don't be a stranger, and we'll see you guys again next week. This show was brought to you by Pandaily.com, a new English language website that tells you everything about China's innovation. Our producer is Carol Yin, and our intern is Gilbert Chan. Mm-hmm.